Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 24th episode, I talked with Esteban Debaye, and I could go on and on about what happened, but I'm just going to go right into the interview. Really great stuff. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Um, I'm here with Esteban Debaye, and um, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty well. Although again, it's pretty hot. I don't know. I don't know. At least for March, anyways. What's it What's it like by you? It's been pretty warm these days. It was like in the 80s today. Yeah. Not as warm as it's been in Illinois. Though. Uh, it's It's crazy. It's crazy. I kind of miss that that like in between phase. But, um, anyways, um, you know, I, I always kind of start these interviews out, you know, somewhat the same way. You know, just kind of getting to know people's backgrounds and. And um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, um, you know where you grew up and, you know, some of those experiences? Because um, I, I believe you're you're a Chicagoan, no? Or okay. Yeah, I'm a native Chicagoan. I grew up in an area of Chicago called Humble Park. Um, that's where I spent most of my uh, childhood times and then moved to, I guess, uh, northwest, more west side of Chicago, um, kind of near Logan Square. Where my family still lives, my parents, and a lot of my family still is, most of my family is still in Chicago, you know, extended family included, cousins and whatnot. So, um, yeah, and I went to grade school near Humboldt Park, which I talk about a lot whenever I present my work, just because um, it had a huge impact on me in terms of my art background. I grew up around a lot of community mural-based projects and whatnot which uh, has come full circle. I'm sure we'll end up talking about it later, but come full circle because that's kind of one of my main jobs right now I do in New York is working with uh, youth on mural projects. Sure, sure. And, I mean, was that was that something then that you became involved with at a, at a young age too? or? Yeah, my kind of introduction into art through these murals was accompanied by uh, kind of an interest in graffiti art and graffiti culture, and that was my first real big uh, attempt to kind of label myself in any way an artist was, you know, coming up in in grade school and into high school, I really invested a lot of energy into being a graffiti artist, but I was very much into the craft of it, more so than the illegal side of it. I was just really into um, the painting and the design aspect. So starting in high school, I got really into designing my own walls and um, really going all, uh, it's spending a lot of energy in that, meeting friends and becoming a part of community and so on, that then pretty much influenced everything from there. And when I went to uh, Southern Illinois, where, where I met you, uh, I started off as an engineer major and then changed my major <laughs> a year later or so without telling my parents <laughs> Um, and I was actually did so being very inspired by uh, Melissa Wilkinson and a couple other the uh, grad students there that that encouraged me to continue to pursue art instead of engineering. <laughs> it's an interesting story because I, I never would have uh, never would have guessed. Um, and so I mean, and, and I know that too that that performance aspect is is also something that kind of had started started early. But I guess before we kind of get super into that, I mean. Um, in, in terms of that, did you did you want also take them like courses in, in high high school in terms of art, or was it all kind of through um, you know the, these kind of uh, uh, community or, or kind of graffiti aspects? Um, 
It was mostly through the graffiti aspect. I did my school did offer you know art courses that of course I, I was happy to take, um, and I really enjoyed them and found myself cutting class and spending time in the art room a lot and hanging around with other artists in my school. Kind of just fit into that that group of, of odd folk and uh, I. But there did reach a time in high school, even though I had a, a really great teacher, Mr. Harris, and a couple others. Um, that I didn't like the way the art class was being taught, I think, for, for a number of just mostly personal reasons. And going through high school, I eventually reached a point where I had the options of taking higher-up art courses, and I chose not to. And uh, just instead really got into science and math and stuff like that and just did the graffiti stuff on the side. So that's one of the reasons why I ended up going to college for engineering is I, I was really into science and I just figured that that was what I was going to do. Graffiti was graffiti and the art that came with it, you know, of course, growing up drawing comic book characters and whatnot was just kind of my, the thing I did on the side for fun, but it totally was what I spent most of my energy doing. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and it's, it's, um, I, I don't know, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I, I, cross boundaries here or say something weird like this, but I don't know why it is, but it seems like, especially for, for dudes, um, I don't know. I, I, I learned how to draw probably more from drawing comics or, or trying to try to mimic them, you know? Um, so it, it seems like such a, a silly and, and yet very straightforward universal. Um, so, you know, what, what was it like then in terms of, um, I guess getting into that? Cause I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, that, that I experienced just, you know, just as a teacher is just, um, students coming in that, that have had a lot of experience taking all those classes and kind of really being bored. Um, and so in terms of then kind of, you know, really deciding to kind of change your, your whole life path, I guess, aside from career path, I mean, what, um, what were some of those things that, that just started, you know, getting you really invested? Well, when I, when I went to SIUC, I, like I said, I started with engineering, and I had a scholarship specifically for it, so I kind of stuck it out for a little bit. But I, I, I don't remember exactly how it fell in place, but I, I think I ended up taking an art class as an elective. And um, I do remember specifically uh, a, a fantastic painter, Melissa Wilkinson, who was a grad student there, really encouraging me and telling me that, you know, I should go to grad school for, for a painting. Uh, and I should work towards that. And I, at the time, had no idea that that was even a possibility, that something like that existed. But as soon as she said that, um, I think it, it kind of stuck. It was like an inception moment. It was like no turning back. I, it was in my head that I could possibly do what I love to do and make a living off of it. And uh, I wasn't really happy in the engineering program. I did well, but I was... I wasn't enjoying it, and frequently I'd do my homework, and then I'd stay up all night drawing and uh, just working on canvases in my dorm room just for fun. And uh, a lot of my friends, it seemed like every one of my close friends was aware that I should be doing art except for me. So <laughs> I, had, I had a lot of people encouraging me um, and discouraging me from, from the engineering route because everybody was, could see that I wasn't very happy in it. So right. eventually I reached a point where I decided to take a chance, and I actually remember, like, a dinner one night. I was with a close friend, Jessica, uh, 
uh, had been encouraging the whole time. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm, I think I'm going to try this out. And as soon as I decided to do that, I think it has a lot to do with where, um, how I was raised and my family background. It meant that I was going to have to take it very serious. And I approached it as, as I would have approached engineering. Um, for me, art, then once I decided that this was something I was going to pursue, I, it meant that I would have to try to make a career out of it, and it wasn't a hobby anymore. So once I really got invested in it, SIUC had uh, not the strongest undergrad um, art department, but it had a fantastic grad department. Right. And I found a lot of kind of support from the grad students, and that just kind of kept me going, and it was... I found a new community. I think the thing that I had always been attracted to in hip-hop was the community. And uh, like you were saying, I got involved in the performative aspect, both in music and in terms of the graffiti and live painting and stuff. But um, I think one thing that had always been missing for me in that community was a couple other passions of mine, which happened to be reading and, and discussing ideas and things like that. And once I found that there was a community where you could do that, I kind of just nerded out and really got into it. And I remember, I remember Melissa saying something to me along the lines of, um, "Well, if uh, if you want to go to grad school, you have to read certain books." <laughs> right. And I was like, "What? Well, which books?" And she gave me a list of books, and I immediately bought them and began reading them and read them all. Um, and when I started reading that, the, the things I was reading, which were, you know really kind of esoteric for me at the time, like Foucault and uh, John Berger and uh, I think Berger, can't remember his name, like oh, right, right. The Object Stairs Back and things like that. But I, I, it was it opened up something that I had already been interested in, which was the philosophical aspect of art. Like I remember taking, I only took one philosophy class at SIU, it was Philosophy 101, but I loved it. Um, and I, I, I feel like I did pretty well in it. And all of a sudden, art opened up this this door for me where I could explore all these different passions, reading, philosophy, creating, drawing, and, and you didn't have to stick to one. You could do all of them and make them part of your work. And I think that's what, that was, when that clicked for me, it was it was over. That was, this is, I decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Well, and it's and it's interesting too. Again, I mean, to to because um, and and I should say even somewhat, I wouldn't say rare, I guess, but you know what I mean. Like um, that transition, it can be such a, a difficulty. So I mean, it, it seems like again, kind of you know, realizing that there's all these kind of opportunities to do what you actually want to do instead of yeah. you know something that might might kind of drive you crazy. Um, how, so, so in terms of then of, of you know, because because obviously I'm, I'm a little familiar with the you know under undergrads uh, kind of curriculum. I mean, um, were there a number of ways that then you were working aside from then? Obviously the you know the because I know that you did a lot of uh, uh, performative kind of painting, um, and then also you know we're taking other classes. But I mean, did you find that there was a a, a way that that they started kind of merging in, in a way that, you know, obviously you wouldn't have had, you know, in that, in that same environment back in, in the in the, the city when you were living in Chicago. Um, yes and no. I, I think that's one thing that's still kind of a big, uh, um, I'm hesitant to say issue, but it's still a big thing in, in my studio practice now. 
which is that, that I was doing the live painting along with these hip-hop shows, which was something that I eventually decided to do after deciding to invest all my energy into the artistic visual art side and no longer music, because I was doing the music for a while. And once I decided to do that, I just, but I, I wanted to still be involved, so I started bringing the visual art into the music scene by doing these live paintings. But meanwhile, my studio was still kind of, at the time they were a little bit closer, but my studio was, was a different space for me. And that's something that has continued. Like, I still do live painting and I still do commission work, um, a lot of commission work based on a kind of style that I had developed out of that. But they're still very separate from the work that I choose to really dive into my studio. And that work in the studio tends to be, and was even then, much more research-driven and much more of an attempt to try to be a part of some larger conversation in a quote-unquote contemporary art discourse. Um, while the live painting was kind of my hanging on to what it was that I always loved in graffiti, which was its intuitive nature and its kind of uh, expressionistic, just just it being basically a place where you could cut loose and similar to, to rhyming and freestyling. It was just, it, it didn't matter what you said, it was just about getting something out and doing it in a certain way um, that had to, a lot to do with you know, stylized language that came from graffiti. So that's something that's still a part of my life, but they were always kind of separate. So uh, the only thing that I did find that kind of crossed over while at least when I was an undergrad was um, I learned a lot from, from both working in the studio and from the live painting that I guess just helped me become technically better and, um, right. and learn about materials because in the live painting I got a little more adventurous with, with stuff and I think one of the big, obviously one of my huge, huge influences was uh, Najar Abul Musawir and he was one of the people that kind of took me under his wing, he was faculty and I had a couple of research grants with him being a mentor and really supporting me, and he's a mixed media artist, uh, abstract painter and he he was the one that introduced mixed media as a concept to me, and that was a big breakthrough. And, and that's something I always kind of, uh, I always forget how much of my work is mixed media because I've worked that way for so long that to me it's just making. I forget that my making always involves different mediums, you know? It's just like, I, I think about them as one medium, I guess, it's, especially with painting. Like, I don't think collage is different than painting or drawing but all my work has been a merger of all those always. And that started with one class where Najar kind of showed me that there was, there was really no reason to separate the mediums if you didn't feel like it. Um, and that was one of the things that live painting allowed me to do is experiment more with mixed medium and, and, and mixed mediums. And then I would go into my studio and maybe use some of the technical if I learned from that. Sure, sure. And I, I mean, too, just to kind of you know, obviously, um, you know, if, if, uh, if, if you look around, you can find, we can find, you know, plenty of, of more current stuff. But I mean, in terms of some of the themes that you were kind of working with at the time, were they, were they kind of similar or, um, cause there's, you know, obviously like, like certainly like in some of the more recent work, um, you know, aspects of social and political kind of ideas, but I mean, um, what was that, I guess, initial, initial stuff that you might've kind of made 
kind of moving into maybe what you would have done for your, your BFA exhibition? It's funny, I, I've, I've looked back on that work at different times, you know, when you have to go through the, the piles of stuff you have in your parents' basement, <laughs> and then you're like, oh my god, I, I forgot I made this. And it turns out, uh, I had always thought that I had this kind of political social commentary um, epiphany in my work in grad school, but it turns out I had been making that type of work in undergrad too, it just wasn't what my main body of work for the thesis exhibition was. The thesis exhibition was more of uh, my kind of indulging in the philosophical aspect that I had really gotten into. It was called The Narcissist Effect, and it was about the role of ego in fine art and the role of ego in graffiti art, which was something I had been really frustrated by in both parties. I, I couldn't get over the fact that the ego was, was the driving force in graffiti, not only in the fact that you're writing your name everywhere, but within the community itself. It was about kind of who was the most up, who was the biggest name, and all this. And then as I got into fine art and really got excited about what it had to offer, I found some of the same pitfalls. And that frequently, um, I think one of my kind of blessings and curses, I kind of like to go against the grain in a rebellious way. And I remember a lot of my faculty at SIU kind of belittling graffiti at times. And something about that really frustrated me enough to want to incorporate it into my painting. And uh, I decided to merge these two. And they were all themed off of research I had done on, on various cultures' takes on the myth of narcissists and the notion of self-love. And there's specifically one book that's fantastic, which is called um, The Heresy of Self-Love, A Study of Subversive Individualism, written by Paul Zwig, which was just like this beautiful book. And it was just so well-written. It was one of the first times I had... I had at that point, I had read a bunch of stuff that was either super accessible or completely esoteric, but I enjoyed it. And then this book was kind of this perfect in-between where it was challenging intellectually, but also was accessible because it was using the language of mythologies and stories and narratives to discuss the history of, of, of self-love. You know? And uh, so that's what that thesis show was largely dealing with and but meanwhile like when I when I discovered these these prints of mine from you know etching 101 and <laughs> all that there you know there were all images of like revolutionary moments or the worker or the common man and like I think I was really at the time really taken by uh, social realism and uh, as I think a lot of young artists are because there's such a heavy-handed narrative while being beautifully painted and being engaged in the culture at the time. So um, so the political aspect, I think, had always been there, and that has a lot to do with uh, my my family background and my father, who has always been politically involved. Right. Well, and, I, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, too, um, I also believe someone was in a, 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 a recent election, though. Yeah, yeah, my father ran right. for mayor this past uh, mayoral election in Chicago. Right, right. But how, how is it that you wound up um, then kind of moving on and, and kind of going to graduate school? And again, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe you went to, to RISD, right? Yes, yeah. I went to RISD MFA uh, for painting. Um, actually, that, back to Melissa Wilkinson, she had said to me when she had told me, you know, you should go to grad school, she said, you should apply, you should, you should go to one of the top grad schools for painting. 
and she had given me a loose list, which I believe were like Yale, Micah, RISD, and uh, um, I don't, I don't, at this point, I don't even remember the fourth one, but um, I decided that those were the only schools I was going to apply to, and uh, I was lucky enough to get into RISD, and uh, that really changed my life in a lot of ways. It was one of the most fantastic experiences I've had in my life for a number of reasons, and I ended up having a really amazing community, mostly the faculty there had a lot of support, and um, <clears throat> it was it was an odd transition for me, coming from SIU, I went straight through to, to grad school, so that was another odd transition, a lot of people take a couple of years off, uh, so I was young, and I went into this pro- program, which was only 10 people a year, so it was 20 painters, yeah. really nice facilities and an incredibly impressive faculty and visiting artists and all that. And I found myself in that program just being like, oh shit, I do not belong here. Right, right. <laughs> I do not know what I'm doing. I don't know anything about contemporary art because I had no real formal art education. Like SIU, the reason why it was so good for me is they kind of let me do whatever I want. Right. And I had art history, which I always loved, but I never, we didn't have any contemporary history class at SIU other than uh, Najjar's um, African-American art history, which was the closest thing that I took to contemporary. So when I got into uh, RISD, I pretty much freaked out right away and signed up for a bunch of undergrad art history courses and tried to catch up with everybody. Um, and that that played a huge role because all of a sudden I was really thrown into um, a discussion about art history that I was equally as excited about and then discovered another passion of mine, which was a love for history and kind of um, especially history that's, that's, that engages visual culture. Um, and that really shaped my work. I think, I think with that, I kind of went in making self-portraits the same way I, I had left SIU and uh, quickly hit defense with that. Uh, and I became good friends and got a new, uh, another mentor, Dwayne Slick, who is an incredible painter who's a full-time um, professor of painting and printmaking at RISD. And he kind of, it, it was more, it, it, he was just a big presence in a lot of uh, the grad students' lives, and he's a good friend of mine, and he's actually, I'm going to see him in New York this weekend, and I see him frequently, and we talk on the phone, and I, he's still a good, good friend. But he had an independent study that he uh, did with me and two other of my peers, another painter from my year, Mark Smick, and a printmaker, Cooper Holowski, and we decided to do this, like, independent study that was about having a shared experience, and that shared experience would then result in an exhibition. Um, so we went to Maine to this place, Owl's Head, and it was accompanied with us doing a visiting artist lecture at the Maine College of Arts in Portland, Maine. So we met some grad students there, we, we presented our work, we then had a series of, of really interesting adventures, um, including just, we were just in Maine in the winter with no heat. So we were all sleeping by a wood-burning stove, like, right on right. this beautiful, like, right at the edge of the water. You know. But one of the things that, that 
was like a, a pivotal moment for me in my art was we were on Peaks Island staying with grad students. And they had, uh, on Peaks Island, there was a series of military forts that had been abandoned. And they had been overgrown with kudzu. And we were just exploring them. And one of them was an artillery, a former artillery kind of uh, a station. And it was a pure concrete structure kind of embedded in a hillside. And you get to a point where you're walking through where there's light at the end of the tunnel on both sides. So your eye is never allowed to adjust, but you're far enough into where you're completely immersed in darkness. And I remember, you know, having such a physical feeling of that darkness that it really moved me in a, in a creepy way. But it was, for some reason, it, like, made the kind of, it made the, the idea of, of war or, or, or the government and all that stuff like really tangible. And when I left that, I remember calling a friend of mine, Cooper Holowski, who had already been making very politically driven work, um, called him after that, that trip and said, hey, Cooper, can I borrow some of your books? I think I'm going to make political art. <laughs> and, uh, and ever since then, it was kind of, that's been, that's been the guy behind my work. It, and now it's changed a lot. I won't jump too, too far ahead because I'm sure we'll get to it, but... Um, I no longer consider myself a political artist, but at the time, I thought, like, that's what I was going for. Well, and I guess, too, I mean, I mean, aside from just the, you know, obviously, it seems like, like a lot of the things that you're building on in undergraduate, you know, especially when you have all this time in graduate school to really focus on these things, you know, it's such a, it's such a different kind of, I don't know, decision, you know, a different process than, than, than just being, an undergraduate and kind of fulfilling some of these other classes and that. Um, but I was going to ask too, what, I mean, what was it like then moving from, you know, uh, the Midwest to, to a place that maybe, you know, was entirely different for you in that regards too. I mean, did you find that, you know, obviously in the story that you were just talking about, you know, location kind of plays a role, but I mean, did you find that the setting was something that also kind of changed your, um, your mindset aside from just, you know, the, the people that you were, that you're meeting and, and being influenced by? Yeah, very much so. Um, that was huge. I think it all began when I was still at SIU and got a, a research grant to go to New York to do a week-long project and got the funding for it. And it was based through McNair Scholars. And um, I did a, a whole, I wrote a whole paper on it, a research paper, and it was a, through the McNair Scholars program. But the thing was, that was, was my second trip to New York. But the first one, I barely really remember. But this is why I was still at SIU. But it was my second trip to New York, and it was, like, really my trip as an artist. So, you know, I, I happened at the time, I was very much into Lisa Yuskavich and Lucian Freud and John Curran as painters. And it just so happened that when I was doing my research in New York then, that all three of those artists had exhibitions on. And I was able to see all of them in New York. And that was something that really changed changed my painting. I actually remember one of my professors telling me so at the end of that semester, saying, you know, ever since you came back from New York, your, your work has changed a lot in a really good way. And I think it was something, like, most painters can identify, like, you really need to see stuff in person. Most people don't understand how much of a difference that makes to you in, in your own studio when you see how somebody else has done it, especially somebody you admire. Um, and when I moved to Providence, 
it was it was mostly the community. I love Providence very much, so but it was a community of, of peers that were so inspiring. You know, I was surrounded by a lot of friends that were very uh, had done a lot. You know, had Fulbrights, had, had been making very challenging work and you know, grants and all residencies, and and we would all go on these trips to New York, and I just fell in love with the city and. Uh, more importantly, I think why I fell in love with the city was I would just come and see as much art as I could, as quick as possible, and going to the Met and the MoMA and seeing all these paintings in person at the time, still considering myself very much just a painter, um, and scale had a huge, huge, huge impact on me. Uh, I think that the scale of New York, just as big of a city as it was, um, and the space that I was allowed to have at RISD was so huge, and that kind of graffiti, uh, that kind of graffiti tendency of wanting to work large came out, and I ended up doing these nine by twelve foot paintings. And at a point, I just started doing just large, large work, and I think that had a lot to do with, like I said, the scale of New York as a city, but also the scale of the paintings I was seeing in New York, uh, ranging from you know, historical uh, paintings that I've seen at the Met to seeing uh, just a really large Lucian Freud uh, or a Chuck Close in person. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, so not only do painters do this thing I already like, but they're also working on a scale that fortunately I'm very familiar with. I think one thing that graffiti really always helped me with was that I was never afraid of a of, of, of big space, of covering a big space. Um, so that that that's like one of the ways I feel like practically in a very weird little way that, that just being on the East Coast allowed me to to change something formal um, that may have not happened if, if I had stayed in in Chicago or, or something else. Right, or especially gone to some place that's a bit more you know a bit more removed. Obviously, for, well, obviously you, you know New York is, is thought of as uh, you know such a mecca of the art world. I mean. But um, I think that's one of the it's one of the most peculiar things, and this is a little bit tangential. But um, you know, just just when you when you're used to seeing something in a book, you know, you've seen this painting over the course of X amount of art history courses, or people referencing it and referencing it, and then actually seeing seeing this stuff in person is such a a, a different. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. so weird because there's times where I've gone in and seen something that. You know, I thought of it as being super impressive, and then was just kind of like, "Whoa!" You know, it's yeah. it's not as good as I thought it was, and then having the complete opposite effect. Um, yeah, that was one of my experience with Lucian Freud. Is the uh, painting he had in the Met was one of the main things that inspired me, and then when I saw a solo show, I was really uninspired by it. And this is still at a time that I really didn't know very much about painting at all. But there was something I didn't like about his recent work. And uh, years later, I come to really understand why it was, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that um, it, it was it, it, he had figured out how to make paintings look like they were discovered, and it just didn't feel like that he was discovering the form as much uh, as as he was in his younger years. I guess they really felt like they were um, they were kind of cranked out uh, and not really fussed over as much. But that, yeah, that's one of those those examples about how seeing something will really change your impression. 
And I think that's something that has that is, is been the most important thing for me, uh, and I maintain a practice of it, specifically with seeing non-traditional visual art stuff. I, I make it a point to go to, and I did this in grad school especially, um, to go to other mediums, shows, glass shows, ceramic shows, uh, film, ballets, whatever, and all of this kind of really has stuck with me. And like now in New York, I try to go to more theater events and, and, and um, contemporary dance and things like that. And, and just the experience of being in that space really gives you a different understanding of that medium that then um, I, I believe translates when, I, when I'm working in the studio into my own stuff. Well, and, and you know, before before we move on, because, I mean, I know that you've got um, a couple of other experiences, you know, after after graduate school to talk about, but just, just since we're kind of on the subject, um, could you talk just a little bit about maybe how one of these pieces would go in terms of you know, thinking of it or, or, you know, if there's any kind of preliminary work. I mean, obviously you've talked a bit about, you know, different kind of texts and, and, and theory that you're reading, but I mean, um, is, is there anything that you kind of use as a starting off point, sketches or? For, for which, which body of work? Well, I, I, guess I, I guess I would just say just an example of like maybe one of those larger kind of painting, you know, mixed media kind of, kind of approaches. Um, for the, uh, Large, the large drawings that I was kind of wrapping up grad school with, um, I first began, like, the, the kind of relationship to, uh, Lightenstein together is, like, like I, I'm saying, are really important. So, um, I, one of the art history courses I've taken was, like, the, uh, I think it was called Modernism and Modernity or, or something along the lines of that. But with Daniel Harkett, who ended up being a huge inspiration to me, he was an art historian. And in that, we were looking a lot at 19th century painting, and uh, Jericho's Raffle of Medusa became one of the most important pieces of my experience there. And it had a lot to do with that as a whole. Um, Jericho, of course, basing this painting off of his... Uh, research of this crazy incident where a ship runs aground um, and essentially politics of the world unfold within who gets lifeboats and who doesn't get lifeboats and uh, within the span of the time that um, they're on the sea and the severed connections and, and you know furthermore this kind of revolution unfolds where these military uh, personnel who are on this makeshift raft then have a series of mutinies and kill most of the people on it. It goes from 135 to something like 30 people in a, few, a span of a few days. And eventually the five people that do survive, I think something like 10 days later, had to resort to cannibalism to do so. Um, and then Jericho does this painting in a classical language, which is no longer the language being used, to try to discuss something that wouldn't traditionally be discussed. It's not noble, you know, so he has this political content um, that he decides to inject into a classical language that, that is so violent that he chooses to, there's no classical language for cannibalism, so he chooses to displace the violence onto the objects surrounding moments in the painting and I remember that, that being so um, ingrained in my head of how interesting it was for him to tackle such, such a serious issue 
were intentionally using this language that would restrict them in some way. And um, at the time, I was really uh, exploring more of my interest in theater because of the basic premise of painting as a stage. And I was looking at, um, I was reading a book called uh, Theater of the Oppressed by Augusta Boal, who was influenced by Paula Freire, who was pedagogy of the oppressed, which a lot of teachers used in, in education, like uh, in studying education, especially in the arts, because the whole emphasis is using critical thinking as a way of promoting um, kind of social consciousness and eventual movements. So Augusto Boal had this idea, I won't go too much in detail on it, but he had this idea that theater shouldn't be the revolutionary action in and of itself, but the rehearsal of, of revolutionary actions. So he had a series of practices that were theater activities that he would get, say, people from a local community to participate in, and through these practices, they would be able to have a better understanding of say what they wanted to get out of their local government or something like that and eventually he was exiled for, for his, his, his work because it was, it was very effective so I began to think about this, this stage literally of painting as a stage and combine that with this notion of the revolutionary action and I decided to approach paintings as backdrops so I took them off the structure and made them flush to the wall and uh, brahmined them and presented them as empty scenes. And one of the things I was thinking about was like a kind of a historical um, Jericho's kind of idea of, of displacing the actions in this classical language in an odd way. I was also thinking about um, subtracting the action, like the idea, like one of them is the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And the painting with its title, it gives its full context, it takes place one minute after the assassination. Um, and the idea was that we have been so, uh, this image, this experience, this, this moment in history have been so much, uh, so appropriated that we have lost a lot of its power. And the only way to get back this power in some way was to completely pretend like it didn't happen or to subtract it. It's like that idea with a memory that the thing you recall the most is the least accurate memory. Um, every time you recall something, you change its story, and uh, uh, essentially each time you alter it, it becomes less and less accurate. So with that, it's kind of this paradox that the thing that you remember the best is the thing you don't remember at all. Um, and I kind of took this approach to these historical moments and did these large drawings, because uh, that's the other thing is, I was really frustrated with painting and the kind of hierarchy of painting. And I think that kind of graffiti edge came in in the sense that I decided to do these history drawings. It was to strip, uh, to strip the history scale of its hierarchy within the painting world by doing it solely as a charcoal drawing. So those large pieces are purely reductive charcoal drawings that um, required me to build a huge tent wear jumpsuit goggles and all types of stuff because I was using several, several huge chunks of compressed charcoal to cover a canvas entirely, massage it into the surface, and then used, you know, uh, eraser and, and other things to pull the lights back out from the bottom of the canvas. Um, and then I'd seal them in, like, 12 cans of spray fix. And just, <laughs> and they became very shiny, very 
uh, oil-esque in a lot of ways, these like weird drawings, history drawings that then were still operating within the space of history paintings. Um, but one of the things I was trying to do besides subvert uh, painting by doing drawings was also subvert the actual uh, event by subtracting it. And the viewer would step to these, they would be hung pretty low to the ground, so that essentially you would be uh, implicated as an actor within this scene in some way. So it's like a backdrop that you step to and automatically places the space of the viewer into the space of theater. So yeah, and so you know, I, I was just saying, uh, um, you know, it's it's great to hear, you know, you've got such a, a really in depth process, and, and especially kind of rooted in this idea of, um, I don't know, it seems like really approaching it from from your perspective, um, which may, maybe sounds silly, um, maybe everybody does that, but it just seems very very apparent to me. Um, and so you know, in kind of following following this up in terms of your your, your graduate work, then. Um, and I was just kind of talking to you about this. I mean, um, how did you wind up at, at Hubbub? And, and I guess, did you have any any specific plans? Um, as you know, that spring semester is rolling up and you're starting to realize, like, all oh, right, um, this uh, <laughs> this bubble that I've been living in is going to be popped soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's something that, that was very much a reality. And I think immediately I... The kind of environment in general that Rizvi offered was one of, of people constantly being on, uh, ready for application deadlines and putting together um, applications and whatnot. So I, I was already in a community that was very well informed into residencies and grants and stuff like that. So I, I really lucked out in that way, and I was able to get a lot of um, a lot of programs that I was interested in applying to lined up in time to crank out applications through while working on thesis and whatnot. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get that residency at Hubbub, which was, was not, uh, 11 months long. And it started technically before I even graduated. So I was like a week late to get there. But I went straight from graduation uh, to drive to South Carolina to live for 11 months. And uh, the, the plan was to continue at the time was to continue these large drawings, but I don't think, I, I didn't realize it then, but I do realize now looking back at it, I don't, I don't think I would have done it anyways, maybe I would have done one more, but I think I work project-based more so than, say, a, a complete body of work. Mm -hmm. So when I got there, we had these really beautiful apartments, which I had the space to do the drawings, but uh, I, it was a live workspace, so I couldn't do them for basic health reasons. Like, you can't use that much charcoal. It begins to just make a dust all over your, everything you own. And I couldn't do that in the same place where my kitchen was and my bathroom and my bedroom. So um, so I began to work on small drawings as exercises and found myself just naturally going out of the studio to, to do things. And I was painting up, doing some experimental mural work, because the program itself provided us with anything we could pretty much think of. And uh, they gave me a few walls that were right basically in my backyard that I could go and paint at any time of the day. Uh, we had the facilities to do a bunch of projects, and one of the things is uh, Carlos Aguadelo, who is the director, artistic director of the uh, Spartanburg City Ballet, he had seen my large-scale drawings and, and 
seen the conversation about them as backdrops and saw the opportunity for us to work together on uh, a, a ballet. So we collaborated on a storyline and came up. He had been wanting to do something political um, for a long time, and, and it's, it was a small city in a very kind of conservative southern uh, portion of, of South Carolina. So that was not an option up until, I guess, I gave him an excuse to do it. Uh, so we came up with, with a kind of vague, we wanted to do this kind of vague hero story um, that dealt with the kind of genre of, of revolutionary narrative. And uh, I designed the backdrops and painted them, and one of the things, one of the central pieces was along that lines of implicating the viewer as entering into a theatrical space, and I decided to construct a stage that went right in front of one of these large backdrops that was elevated in a way. Um, and it was also the first time I had made a, a, a video. I made a projection that looped infinitely of leaflets falling upwards. And the leaflets themselves contains excerpts from Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, introduction to Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. And in it, he basically chastises the French people for not paying attention to what was going on in Algeria. And I, reading this introduction, because Franz Fanon is a post-colonialist theory, it's talking about the psychology of colonialism and the, uh, the African population. And at the same time, I had been watching uh, a documentary called Bloods and Crips Made in America, made by Stacey Peralta, who talks about a very similar thing about uh, essentially the psychological effects of colonialism in America and it talks about the Watts riots um, and the kind of police brutality that was going on that eventually resulted in this uh, like the notion of Walter Benjamin's moment of divine violence of uh, violence that comes from political turmoil but inevitably boils up and is not exactly uh, it, it, it almost seems to come out of nowhere doesn't seem to really make sense for what happened. So some basic traffic stop ends up resulting in a full-scale city riot that the National Guard eventually has to get called into. So I had read this excerpt from Jean-Paul Sartre, and I, I removed uh, the word Algeria and the year and left them blank, and I felt like it was geared towards the American public and what was going on uh, around that time. And that was included. These were these leaflets falling infinitely upwards, which was the piece was called Resistance Movement One, and that was projected on, on a huge scale, on a huge, huge theater. And while I was working on all these um, backdrops and all this stuff, I was working in this crazy abandoned auto shop. Um, I started to have a lot of guilt about dealing with the notion of political movements and social justice in the format of a ballet. It felt very much like a cliche. It felt very much like. Uh, like it, it felt hip hypocritical because it was like, why would I use a traditionally kind of uh, bourgeois medium to talk about social justice? It, it, it was moving too much into this realm of, 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 of uh, a classical language that was purely for like escapism in some way. But it actually, as a result of me thinking all these and having all these insecurities about doing it, um, I ended up coming with up with an idea for the first soon-to-be film piece. But when the ballet actually happened, it ended up being very effective because of its context. Um, so 
It was seen twice by about 800 people total, I guess. And the people weren't used to this discussion being, especially in this format, you know, they're used to uh, classical ballet. So it ended up really striking them in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I kind of felt in some way validated for, for doing it. But in the meantime, I had come up with this idea to do uh, a short film based on uh, kind of a satire of myself as a political artist and dealing with the issues of, of how I felt like a hypocrite being a political artist because it just seemed like what was my role of, as, as an activist? Was I doing anything to actually make a difference? I felt like an armchair activist, an armchair intellectual. So... Uh, at the time, I had already been very much invested in, for my own reasons, uh, researching silent film and film noir. It was just a passion of mine in general. I never thought incorporated into my work. Was, but for some reason, after I had this moment with, with this performance piece where I really got drawn in by the role of the theater in viewing and how essentially you can control your audience. There was no painting to viewer relationship where it was the, the duration of viewing was dependent on that person's taste or mood for the day. The duration of viewing was was essentially a contract in some way. You show up, you're going to watch this show, you could leave early, but most people want to at least stick out stick it out for the whole thing. And I, I, I just love that for very selfish reasons. It was like, okay, you're gonna give me this amount of time to discuss what I want to discuss. So I had done that uh and it led to, to the idea of investing in the film format and what what that could potentially do. And one of the uh, the things that I had been viewing a lot was, was Charlie Chaplin's work, and I had gotten into him specifically for how I felt like he was an incredibly effective political artist. Uh, and one of the main examples of that would be Modern Times, him making that during... Great Depression, and then um, The Great Dictator, which was made in 1940, years before America decides to enter World War II. And, uh, of course, he is eventually exiled from the United States. Uh, Hoover was out to get him the whole time because they believed he had communist sentiments, and they were trying to get him out of the country forever, and eventually were effective in doing so uh, when he was much, much older. But his kind of his, his, his use of this this medium and humor and sentiment specifically. I've always been very intrigued by seduction and sentiment um, because while it's viewed frequently as cliche and most artists want to avoid it, uh, I've always been really interested in it as a tool. I just think it's very tricky to use and maybe that's why I'm, I'm invested in it. But so... I came up with this idea, it's called the, uh, the preemptive collapse of an arduous revolt against lunar aspirations, or that revolt gives life its value. And it was making fun of me, and the tension of the title was to be overly academic. The whole thing is a, is a comedy about this armchair activist, armchair intellectual. So the main character was me, but the main character's name was um, the artist's revolutionary figure, and my arch nemesis was the leader of the intellectuals. And the only difference between us was the size of our beard. And it was done in the typical Chaplin-esque language of slapstick humor, 
But the idea was the main character is trying to organize a revolution against the moon because he blames the moon for aspirations and aspirations for injustice. Um, but the whole thing is very anticlimactic. It's very anti-hero. Like nothing ever happens. He's trying to get people rallied behind this idea. But and that that quote, the title. He's only able to speak in other people's words because his idea of struggle has been so academicized that he has no words of his own. So every time a, a kind of quote card appears when he's speaking, it's always a citation from an author. Martin Luther King, Franz Fanon, Cornel West, um, Susan Sontag, etc. So he never speaks in his own words. Um, and the idea is all kind of underlined by, by um, Albert Camus' myth of Sisyphus. And his discussion, the existential, the only true existential question is whether or not you kill yourself. And life is absurd. The purpose of life is essentially the revolt against that absurdity. And so me struggling for purpose in both my artwork and in my life, you get that kind of subtitle to it, which was a quote from Metasisphus, which was, that revolt gives life its value. So the whole film was about making fun of me and like whether or not I could make a difference as an artist, what it meant to be an artist. And um, I eventually screened it in a way where we presented it as if I was as an established director and my friend who played my arch nemesis played like a James Lipton-like <laughs> inside the actor studio in which we presented the whole thing. So that was a performance. And then the sales of the film were then used to start a scholarship fund for the Boys and Girls Club. And so, yeah, so that, but that was, the, and once, once I made it, I just found that it really opened up so much, so much for me. Um, because I always wanted to write, paint, draw, and uh, tell stories, and all of that, it finally, it felt like, well, film as a language is, is the space where I can do all of these at once, and ever since then, I still do drawings and work on drawings, but film has become kind of my, my driving way of thinking about stuff. Well, and, and such a direct and, and universal way, you know, um... And, and so I, I guess you know because because we're we're kind of approaching uh, nearing the end, but I, I, I'm kind of ingrained or you know engrossed and not not wanting to stop uh, too too early. But um, could you I guess then then maybe talk about that transition then into I guess how you're how you're able to continue to do those things now because it, it sounds like um, again with what you were talking about earlier um, and and what your I guess what is your current job and and um, how you're how you're active and kind of contributing to that that dialogue and then also uh, your community because again um, I, I can perfectly understand the idea of uh, um, feeling like you're making work in a bubble but it seems like you found then a way to kind of really take all these ideas that you've been kind of running through and, and then really put them in a way that that's accessible but then also you know that you can really actually shape and 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 make a difference in the in the community that you're part of. Yeah, I think. I, Really quick, I wanted to say that one thing we had to hit on that, that is really important to me is, is uh, there was a brief moment where people were frequently discussing the idea of me doing prints and entering printmaking because essentially printmaking had this legacy of the discussion of being more democratic due to its ability to be mass-produced. Mm-hmm. And I just reached a point where I really felt like, I felt like that's what film 
or video was. Video was the contemporary form of what printmaking had been when it was deemed as being more of a democratic medium. Um, but I, uh, I think the uh, the way that I do it now is like it's. I call it film, but it's not. I, I, I'm almost ashamed of saying that it is film, just because I don't know anything about film. Right. You know, very much self-taught. I've never actually used film as an actual medium. It's all digital. Um, the only reason why I call it film is because it's not video. <laughs> right, right. Um, because I'm still attracted to narrative and all my influences, I'm intentionally referencing cinematic moments. Um, but I, I'm now using it to, I'm working on a project right now called Viable Option, which is uh, a cross between documentary footage, cinematic reenactments, public performances, um, about my experience working with my father in Chicago on his mayoral campaign against Ron Emanuel. And it's a, and this video is going to be about a 20 minute short film that's accompanied by a series of two dimensional works, which will include the collages that I sent you and movie posters that I'm making. Um, but the, the thing is the narrative and the fiction that kind of the poetics of say jazz, like the idea of the note in between, that's, that's not, is what really counts, you know? Mm -hmm. Is I'm creating two parallel stories: the fiction of my father as a political image in actuality, and then the uh, a fictional character of him that's based on a compromise between me as a maker and my dad as an image, who is essentially a, a horrible, or not a horrible, just not a good politician. And I have these two stories running parallel to each other because essentially what I want to address is that space in between of what it is that we we look for leadership and all the work now is up. I've been able to hone it in for this project is I'm, I'm really interested in theatricality of political leadership specifically so in that I've been looking at things such as speeches as um, state of union addresses and, and that and within that I've done animations that also are based on that approach like Bertolt Brecht's the interrogation of the good uh, which is about the kind of subjective nature of political righteousness, uh, of, of political violence, and how these things are open-ended depending on what side you're on. Um, but I think the kind of video has mostly been, for me, also a way to reestablish an excitement that, that can be lost in the studio at times. I think most artists can understand that if you get to a point where you're, you're working on something um, and you hit a wall, sometimes it's always really refreshing to pick up that little side project you had in your studio and work on that for a little bit before you go back to that, you know? And kind of video is, is that in a larger way for me too because I still love to draw, I still love to paint. But video is kind of this like large side project where I picked it up and I just found myself with that excitement that I had when I first discovered painting. And... Um, it just makes making much more enjoyable. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, and it, um, in, in terms of then exhibiting this or, or showing it or having a performance that, I don't know, I, I don't know, what, what is your, your I guess, conception for um, how this is all going to, I guess, play out in a, a public forum? Yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, 
Well, with answering that, I realized also I, I didn't answer one of your questions, which is what, what am I doing now in terms of work? And one of my jobs is um, I teach um, I teach freelance a lot of teaching, so do substitute teaching and whatnot. And, um, but one of the things I work for is Brownsville Community Mural Projects. And right now I'm working at Rikers Island, and that's where I was coming from. I'm working with the adolescents that have been sentenced, so they're in there, they're, they're in prison. And we do these kind of social justice workshops, discussions, and then we design a mural. And right now we're painting a mural in, in EMTC, one of the buildings on Rikers, with uh, 10 adolescents, and it's in the gymnasium. So the mural thing, uh, and as I was working today, I really had this great moment where it really reminded me of how much I enjoy painting on walls. And it's something as simple as that. I really, really love it. Um, but that, going into this idea of how I exhibit this work, I mean, off the top of my head, honestly, I do want to have some type of traditional gallery exhibition in some way um, where the two-dimensional work is presented. And I don't want the video to be presented in a, in a loop format. I don't like the idea of my video being approached in the same way you would approach a painting where you come to it at any point you want or that it's inconsiderate of you as a viewer and it's going on regardless. I'd like to have screening times for it. That's right. Things. Um, but I also want some type of different public programming for it that I don't know how that's going to manifest yet, but I would like it to enter into uh, a broader sense and ideally have just like a different audience in some way. I've always thought about you know, I'd love to have an exhibition like a post office or something, I don't know, something like uh, where you get traffic that doesn't necessarily mean they're participating in the viewing experience. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, because even, even just kind of thinking of this and, and thinking of, um, you know, social media, um, which is something that's interesting because, you know, it's something that, you know, existed in a much different form, I guess, when I... <laughs> You know, when I, when I think back to even just, you know, being in graduate school, like the, the level of, of awareness for social media is so different. Because um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about even the, the possibility of trying to do screenings in, I don't know, like different places where you might even kind of be like this uh, a person that could kind of interact with audiences, um, you know, from, from some distant place, you know. Yeah, I think I think I, along the lines of what I have done with uh, that first short film, I definitely have been playing around in my head with the idea of screening this and having the screenings coincide with an actual performance in the way they're presented. So, like we did that James Lipton inside the Actors Studio um, thing. I think uh, one thing I've been thinking about was the idea of presenting these screenings as a political representative in some way, like, as a character for this fictional character and this fictional campaign in some way, and that these screenings would, would coincide with that introduction and in that way would also tour the same way, like, you know, a national campaign trail would be or something like that. So that's something I, I, I'm playing around with. Um, but the film itself, I still have to film a couple scenes and uh, New York living has slowed that down a little bit. So right, right. So we're back after a little bit of a hiatus. Um, 
And and so I was just going to say again, we've been you've been you've been so thorough and and you know really interesting in, in answering all these questions and, and you know elaborating on your process and that. And the last thing that I was just going to ask you, um, just because of time, um, is you know what what do you find um, that that that's really um, the things that really inspire you to kind of keep keep doing what you're doing. Um, so, like, yeah. So we were talking about. I think I think comedy is a big thing for me, um, which I think most people that know my work wouldn't, wouldn't guess, just because my work tends to be pretty somber. And even uh, I, I find a lot of it funny. It's a very dark sense of humor, uh, but sometimes I think maybe people people don't really read it that way because they may know me um, and they know that I take these things serious as well. But I think because of that comedy. Um, and film. So, and from the, the relationship between the two, uh, one of my favorite things going on right now is Louis C.K. show. Uh, I and, and Reggie Watts, who I just saw nice. alive a couple days ago or yesterday. Um, uh, who else? Louis, Reggie, but these kind of performers, these these actors or performers that I think in a lot of ways are dealing more with this uh, really bizarre space in between sincerity and comedy in a very Andy Kaufman-esque manner where they're becoming performance artists. But comedy is just uh, one of the vehicles of using. But essentially a lot of it is still revolving around a very old idea of theater, which is that of the storyteller. So I am very much still a sucker for a good story and I've become more interested in directors, so, um, but I'm very interested in a lot of the kind of traditionally respected directors, such as Martin Scorsese, has become a really big influence for me recently. Uh, I don't like a lot of the more recent films, but I've been revisiting his classics, and the reason why I'm really interested in him is like, it's... Like, I remember hearing, I was at this residency this past summer called Scalhegan in Scalhegan, Maine, and Alex Katz came to talk, and he was talking about how he decided on his craft compositions, and these, like, close-ups on faces, was really largely influenced by him wanting to figure out a way that painting could compete with TV. And he was noticing the kind of anxiety and the drama that would be created in television through close-ups. And he started to use this as a format in his paintings. So I think one of the things I've been paying attention to in in trying to look at how directors decide to go about making a film is a kind of interly sense of composition. That and its combination with music scores have been really getting interested in how scores are using. Because on this film project I'm working on right now, I'm finally working with a composer who is working with me trying to decide how we're going to have this soundtrack to this to this film because like I said I'm still very much into the kind of manipulation of truth of, of, of uh, seductive formats such as a blockbuster movie or something like that so um, yeah comedy and and mostly comedy which I, and besides that reading and and Chaplin is still a big passion of mine I just finished reading his autobiography and revisiting his, some of his films, and I'm planning on rewatching all of them a couple more times now that I've read his book, because now I know the stories behind them that they were made and why they were made. Um, 
But I think that kind of tragic comedy has always been a huge influence uh, on me. And I've always strived to want to make something like Louis or like Chaplin, where there's this underlying humanity which provides the kind of depressing aspect to it. But really, the whole thing is just so funny because it's it happens to us all in some way or another. And uh, with that, I think it's been it's been really fascinating talking to you. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having. Thanks again to Esteban for joining us today. You can see more of his work by visiting estebandevalletumblr.com. And of course, there'll be links to his work and his video work at studiobreak.com, where you can find a whole bunch of other interviews by other artists. Please check those out. And again, if you're not familiar, this is the first time that you're listening, you can subscribe to the Studio Break podcast. Just go to the iTunes store, search under Studio Break. Our intro music today was Amy Butler's Beautiful Eyes and Henry Frey's They All Do the Charlie Chaplin Walk. Again, you can find those through freemusicarchive.org. And again, the album specifically is Antique Phonograph Music Program. Please remember, you can leave us comments at Studio Break, and then also, if you'd like, you can join the Studio Break fan page on Facebook. We'd really appreciate that. It'll give you updates for when we have new episodes if you're not a subscriber through Studio Break. Of course, if you're unfamiliar with my work, you can visit my website, davidlinaway.com, where I have plenty of work there and a new painting that I just finished. And with that, I hope you're all out enjoying the weather. We'll talk to you real soon. about the job.